welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. For a number of years now, I've had a sense, I suppose, of conviction about a certain matter. I feel that it's evident to me as you look around in society and you see what's happening on the news and you catch wind of what's happening in the world, that we're living in a time and a season where things are moving in an accelerated rate in readiness and preparation for the return of Jesus Christ. One of the evidences of that is clearly the accelerated evil that's taking place in our world. Have you noticed that you turn on the news and just about every report and every situation that's happening around you is not positive or good news? It's often very bleak and terrible news. There's there's wars and rumors of wars and there's Nations rising up against nations and there's people groups being destroyed by anarchy and and corrupt power in just about every corner of our world, including our own country as well. We have to be highly vigilant in our prayer life about what's happening around us. You know, Jesus asks of us to pay attention to the times. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus speaking about the end times. In both accounts in those scriptures, in all of the parables, all four of them, he wants us to be aware, to be watchful, to be prayerful, to be conscious of what's happening around us. Now, I think because of the the kind of rise of individualism, we tend to think if our own lives are good, then it's good. But that's not actually enough in the economy of God because particularly in the world right now, we have to take our place as part of the greater cause in humanity for the greater good of all that God wants to do. We can't just live in little isolated bubbles where things are going okay for us, thank you very much. We have to consider our brother. We have to consider our sister. We have to consider that while we're worshiping Jesus in freedom in this side of the world, there are people who are given their lives just to be able to read the Bible. We have to remind ourselves of the big, glorious, cosmic picture of God at work in society and humanity. And, you know, all the freedoms we take for granted, and trust me, I think we do. There are brothers and sisters of ours in other parts of the world, and they would just love to stand in a congregation like this and be able to worship Jesus without fear for their lives. And you and I, we do this every week. You know, this is common for us. I don't think in the future that it will be that easy, to be honest with you. I think we're fastly moving towards a world where anything that professes Jesus is the only way and the truth and the life will actually come under scrutiny and maybe eventually some kind of adversity. As a friend of mine who preaches on the streets, he's been arrested three times in the last six months because he's speaking about Jesus in a public place. And and I want to tell you, he's not, you know, talking into the hot potatoes of society. He's not talking about you know sexual identity or, or even you know um, the woke movement that's happening. He's just simply preaching the gospel of salvation that God loved the world and he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for all humanity. Now we think perhaps nothing too much of that but if that's the way society is moving can you imagine where we'll be in 20 years time? And the freedoms and the liberties that we're enjoying right now, I don't think they will be as available to us as they currently are. Because there is an agenda at work. Listen to me. There is an agenda at work in our world. The enemy of our souls is trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Whether you want to believe it or you don't want to believe it, today when you woke up, you were at war. 
and he is your adversary and he wants to destroy everything in you that Christ has given you. Your love for Jesus, he wants to wreck it like a wrecking ball. Your passion for worship, he wants to destroy it by disillusioning you. In just about every way, he wants to use people around you to offend you to such the point that you retreat from the community that God has called you to and you try to live an isolated spirituality. There is no such thing as an isolated spirituality. The Bible says of us that we are the body of Christ. If you're hurting, I'm hurting. If you're in need, I'm in need. We are not just individuals doing our own thing. We are a living, breathing organism, the body of Christ here on the earth. And therefore, it matters what happens between us. It matters that we pay attention to what's happening around us. And it's so important that we get ready and get equipped for all that is ahead of us. Amen? Now, if it's hard for you today, and you happen to live another 30 years, I can guarantee you it'll become more difficult in the days that lie ahead. Why? Because we are living in the most incredible time. Jesus is coming back. Now, three of us are excited about you, Jesus. Please help the rest of us catch up. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for his bride. He's passionate about his church. The Bible says that all these things that seem to matter so much to us, heaven and earth will pass away, but the two realities that will stay eternally are the word of God and the church of Jesus Christ. You are so precious in the eyes of God, he has set up an eternal dynamic to your relationship with him. And while the world is in chaos, the church has this great privileges, this great privilege afforded to us of growing in stature and wisdom. You see, if Jesus was to come back tonight, We'd probably come back for something that looks more like the bride of Frankenstein than the bride of Christ. I mean, we've added so many bits and pieces to what it means to be a Christian. We sing these songs, Christ is enough for me, but we've got 300 additives and clauses and conditions to our relationship with him. Christ is enough for you. He is all sufficient. He's more than enough for your every need. But maybe we've got caught up with some other things thinking that they would satisfy us because it excuses our inability to meet with God in such a profound way. Now my job, my job here is not to tickle your ears and tell you, you know, it's all going to be all right. I don't believe in what I would call Peter Pan theology. It'll all pan out in the end. Okay, I believe that you and I have a part to play in rising to the call that's on our lives to stand firm in Jesus Christ. You and I have a part to play in that. We're not passive bystanders. We're partakers in his divine nature. And he will build his church. And even the gates of hell could not prevail against it. Come on, wake up. I know it's hot, but it'll be a lot hotter in hell. Jesus is here amongst us to do just that. When the Spirit moves amongst his people, God is wanting to raise us. He wants to raise us up. He wants to, to fulfill in and through us the dream he has for us. When we come around the word of God, it's not just something we hear and we go home and forget about. We cling to his word because his word is life and truth. And it holds us steadfast in a consistently uncertain and shaking world. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so as your pastor, as someone's been here now over 18 months, I've enjoyed the journey we've done this far. But actually, to be honest with you, we're only really beginning I believe that God has given me a responsibility and a great joy to raise up disciples, raise up followers of Jesus. Let me tell you what my dream is, that in whatever context you live or work, you would become a catalyst for change. 
My dream is that you would walk into any room and the kingdom would come through you in such a powerful way that everything there that the enemy is trying to destroy would be destroyed in the name of Jesus Christ. My dream is that your family would prosper. As your soul prospers, your relationships prosper. My dream is that you would know your identity, your true identity as a son and daughter of the Most High God. And if you know your identity, you'll be clear about your authority. Because there is no other body on the earth that has the authority that you have been given. All authority under heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. And he passes it to his disciples and commissions them to go out into the world and to flood every atmosphere with his fullness and his love and his power. That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do on a Sunday. Because this is just, if you like, a petrol station. We call in, we get filled up, and we go out into the world where it really counts. And we start to affect this one city, wherever we work or whatever part of it we live in, we affect it with a a hope and a belief that Christ is in me and therefore everything that seeks to come against that actually will have to bow its knee and surrender to the reality of Jesus. But we don't get there quickly, you know. You see, God could wake us up tomorrow and we could all be so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever prayed those prayers? Have you ever said, God, you know, when I wake in the morning, may all my troubles be gone? Come on, tell the truth. I know you've prayed those prayers. Have you ever said, God, could you possibly by next week make me live the fullness that you promised me? God, is it possible overnight? Let, let, a, let a prophet come to the church, God, that lays hands on me and commissions me to great things. We've all, we've all done that. Foolishly, I think, sometimes, believing that that transference of anointing to me was suddenly a catalyst me into fullness. Here's how God prefers to bring change. Little by little. Conversation by conversation. Step by step. You see, to get to the fullness of prophecy, we need to be prepared to walk through the process that's available to you and me. And that process is not automatic. It doesn't just turn out because I said something 20 years ago. I have to walk with Jesus on a daily basis. I have to listen and climb my heart towards his ear. I have to understand what the Spirit is saying to me. I have to find myself embedded in the Word, and more importantly, the Word embedded in me. And as God begins to do that work in me, little by little, he takes me into the fullness of his dream for me. It's not overnight. It doesn't happen instantly. There's no magic wands here. But we do have the Holy Spirit. And I love this scripture. It's such an encouragement to me. He who began... A good work in me. Why don't you say that to your neighbor? Just say it over their life. He who began a good work in you will carry it on until it's completed. Do you believe that, church? Come on, your miseries. Do you believe that, church? Yeah. See, if God starts something, he always finishes it. But here's the thing. I can either slow it down or speed it up. And as for me in my house, I think speeding it up is the best option. I want to walk with God to such a way that I start to see the accelerated reality of his promise over me. I have choices to make. I have decisions every day. I have to decide to trust him over my feelings. I have to walk with him by faith sometimes because sometimes things look like they're the opposite to the very thing he's promised me. And in those moments, I'm being tested. I'm being conditioned. I'm being, I'm being prepared for the greater battles that lie ahead. If I can fight the lion and the bear, I will be able to take down Goliath one day. I have to learn to fight the lion and the bear. I have to learn to overcome certain things. You know the biggest thing I overcome? Me. (laughs) Is that the biggest thing you have to overcome? Come on, you misery, speak. The biggest thing you have to overcome is yourself. Isn't that true? 
And thank God for his spirit that's at work in us to do just that. God, moment by moment, patient, long-suffering, long-suffering, works with us. Love will always have its way. I have to allow it to have that way in my agreement and my partnership with him. So I was up in Chorley in Lancashire yesterday speaking at an event for uh, leaders in the Elam movement and in dialogue with some of those pastors and leaders and they've been in ministry for a long time, we kind of ended up talking about what we thought God was doing in the world today. Do you ever have those conversations with people? And as a pastor, of course, we have a particular lens. What's God doing in the church? And I think out of the 15 or 16, and there were many more than that there, people I ended up having decent conversation with, every single one of those men and women was saying that they're finding that in their local church context, the biggest kind of desire of their heart is to see God's people rise. Somehow, we've settled. Somehow, We've surrendered to disappointment or disillusionment. And you know, as I listened to those men and women talk, I identified with some of the things that they're struggling with. And um, one of the things they asked me was, well, what are you doing to try and prepare your church for the future that's coming? How are you enabling discipleship in the local church? And I, I was delighted to say that we're walking through some spiritual disciplines. Now, you've just been singing, his name is power. <laughs> yeah? Spiritual disciplines are not your enemy. They're your friend. And they're training you and equipping you and facilitating what God wants to do in you. And I've come to one this morning. We may take a break next month because I'm a little bored myself. But we'll come to one this morning, okay, that I think is probably the very heart, the very heart of so many things that is available to us in God. We're going to talk to you this morning about the discipline of service. If you have a Bible with you, go to John chapter 13 for me, please. Just as you're turning there, a little bit of the background to this particular context. Jesus has gathered his disciples together, his friends, his colleagues. They've walked together, they've talked together, they've seen all kinds of great things. And he gathers them for what will be his last supper, his last moment with them. But prior to this particular event, there has been some rumblings in the camp. Now, I know none of us would struggle with this, but the greatest problem that these disciples are facing right now is trying to identify who is the greatest amongst them. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, we see that an argument has broke out amongst them as to who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, just by way of setting this up for you, the problem with that particular thinking is when we find the greatest, and God knows that's something we perhaps all would like to be considered, <laughs> or maybe you've arrived like I've arrived at a point where you're thinking, well, I probably won't be the greatest, but I could be the best I could be. That's also okay. Okay? When you find the greatest, by default, what do you discover? The least. That's the outworking of that. And in society, we have a little phrase, a, a term that describes that process. And in fact, any interactions you have with people, these things are probably happening in a submersive way and you may not even fully understand their importance or their significance. But this phrase 
is not a phrase that's recognizable in the scriptures. It's called the pecking order. The pecking order. And so the disciples are trying to grapple with who is Jesus' favorite disciple? Who is the greatest amongst them? And when that conversation starts, of course, people start to get a little bit offended, a little bit aggressive maybe at times. I've watched myself in gatherings with people. Don't you find yourself doing this? Isn't this kind of true about all of us? You're talking to somebody, you say, hello, what's your name? Isn't usually the second thing you ask, what do you do? What do you think we're doing at that moment? We're trying to find the pecking order. We're trying to establish who's better than who. Yeah? So I just decided I would lie about it. I think if you go in at the top, there's no way down, is there? I'm a brain surgeon. <laughs> One of my favorites when I was younger was, I'm an astronaut. Nobody argues with astronauts. I was at a, a hairdresser's once and uh, having this great conversation with the lady cutting my hair. And, you know, it was one of those moments where you just kind of, you can, you can sense God is there. And, and she was asking these questions. In fact, she was asking them because she'd had some kind of spiritual experience and she wanted to understand, was it her dead mother that had been kind of present in these moments? And so I love that kind of context. I love that kind of conversation. And, and so as other people were interacting, oh, I saw a ghost once, or I saw this once, or I saw an apparition once, or I saw, you know, something move across in front of my eyes. I think it was, there are always children in these things. Have you noticed that? Children are very strange old men. It's like the only people that have ever died and become spirits are children and very strange old men. So we're talking around it. And um, obviously at some point, because people were listening, the hairdresser said to me, it's a bit strange. What do you, what, how do you know so much about these things? And she said, what do you do? What do you do? I said, I'm an astronaut. I said, no, I'm, a, I'm I think, so I say I'm a pastor. That usually ends every conversation I have with people. <laughs> if I say I'm a minister, they think I work for the government. <laughs> okay, so I thought, well, what will I say? Ah, I'm a life coach. And, uh, and she said, oh, that's amazing. She began to talk a bit more, and we began to explore what that actually meant. But that pecking order thing... Do you find yourself doing that? Do you, do you find yourself having to read or find out or discover where you sit in the room? Yeah? Men are particularly good at this. While Jesus is speaking to this, he's calling us out on that. And he's asking us to consider, why do we do that? You see, we look at these stories of disciples and we think, I would never fight who would be the greatest. But actually, our subconscious way of living automatically moves to those particular nuances. And without even thinking about it or even recognizing it as a problem, and it is a problem in the eyes of God, we're starting to assess, am I the greatest here? 
Do I have the best job? Am I the most educated? And I think that's because we are orphans in the way we see the world, and an orphan always has to establish their right to be there. But church, the good news, if you belong to Jesus today, you are already at the table. Amen? You have come home to the heart and the family of God. Let's look at this together. John 13, we're going to read from verse 2 onwards. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Do you mind if I pause there for a moment and just explain what I think happened to Judas? You see, your soil has six dynamics or aspects to it. Your heart has six soils, if you like, that live and exist inside of it. I'll take you through what this one clearly demonstrates, which is the negative side, the three negative aspects of the soil of your heart. The first one is hurt. If your heart is hurt, has anybody's heart ever been hurt? Don't you find that when your heart is hurt, that you start to see things differently? Don't you find that if your heart is hurt, you start to walk and relate cautiously? Don't you find that if your heart is hurt, you can sit on the parameters of something and see it? And this is what we say more clearly. You see, the church is full of people whose hearts are hurting. And because we don't talk about that or explore that, we even permission that. I've had people whose hearts are hurting make the most ridiculous decisions about their lives because they're hurt by something. They're offended by something the pastor said or something the pastor didn't do. You know, somebody sat in their seat when they go there every week and surely Jesus knew that they were coming to the church and that's their seat. And so they've been there for so long that their, you know, their buttocks are imprinted into the material and, and somebody sat there and they're hurt, they're offended. You, you'd be surprised. And, and, and the, the funny thing about that is for me, when things like that don't matter to me, but for some people they really matter to them. I've seen people leave churches and leave relationship and leave community over the most simple thing that could have been resolved with a conversation. I do not anticipate for one second, second anyone in this room came here today with the intention of hurting anyone. But you see, the problem is when we're walking with hurt ourselves, hurt people hurt people. And so that's one soil in your heart. If you don't deal with your hurt, here's what happens to the soil of your heart. It becomes hard. What was just a hurt at first becomes hard. And, and when your heart becomes hard, what we tend to do is we tend to not be able to experience the presence of God. It was justifiable to be hurt. Perhaps maybe you could have shared that with somebody or got counsel for that or prayer for that. Sometimes it's not justifiable to be hurt. Sometimes we're just hurt because we're hurting anyway. And we need to be honest about that. Some people are a walking wound. They spend their whole lives being hurt by anything. If you look at them sideways, they think you're saying something. If you're talking to your friend, they think you're gossiping about them. They are, they are such a, a kind of conditioned individual with pain that they presume all of these things are happening around them and they may not be happening at all. And whether you said hello to them or you didn't say hello to them, the, the outworking of that is they're going to be hurt. 
You're all nodding because you're either one of those people or you know one of them. Okay? But if hurt is not dealt with, your heart becomes hard. And it becomes hard to the presence of God. And Judas, he didn't choose to become like this towards Jesus. Judas believed in Jesus. He was, he was profoundly affected by Jesus' ministry. But the Jesus that turned up for him wasn't the Jesus that he hoped for. Hello. He wanted a Jesus that would tear down the Roman Empire. And he got a Jesus that took care of children and broken women. He, he wanted a Jesus that would smite everything that was against the Jewish people. And he found a Jesus that had compassion even on the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, one of the things that causes our heart when it's hurt to move to hardness, and what that happens is our concept of Jesus. In that transaction, our concept of Jesus begins to shift and change. And, and you know, I haven't been around a while now, because I'm over 21, you figured it out. You haven't been around a while now. The church is full of people who are disappointed in Jesus. You prayed that prayer, it didn't come to pass. You believed for that job, you didn't get it. You asked God to intervene in a situation, and he didn't. And instead of being honest about that, we just sing louder. I think we sing louder because we're trying to drown the real story of our hearts and lives. Do you know that God is perfectly capable of handling your disappointment with him? And you won't be the last. And here's why we're disappointed, just like Judas. His ways are not our ways. His words are not our words. Have you found that about him? I mean, the amount of people that I prayed that God would smite, he's not smited one of them. Have you prayed for anybody to come to their own ruin? I mean, we say it in prayer, but really we're just cursing somebody. You know, could you just really expose them for the charlatans that they are? Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. And of course, he didn't. And of course, he won't. Why? Because his ways are not my ways. And this whole journey where I'm trying to grapple with God not doing things the way I expect them to be done, if I'm not careful, will cause my heart to go from being hurt to being hard. And therefore, when I gather with people like this, and I've seen this for thousands of events I've been at, one person's weeping because they're experiencing the presence of God, and the other person stands there like a log in a field. Is God actually here? Absolutely. But our capacity to experience him is hindered by what's happened on the inside of our lives. We've moved from being hurt to becoming hard. But it gets worse. And that's exactly what happened to Judas. We can have a hurt heart. We can have a hard heart. Those things merge into one if not dealt with. But we can end up having a hostile heart. And now as we look at the scripture, we realize that's exactly where Judas finds himself. He's no longer disappointed in Jesus. He wants to get rid of him. 
He's no longer unhappy that things didn't work out the way he hoped they would. He wants to destroy the work of Jesus. He wants to destroy Jesus himself. And you know, it's great for us to sit and listen to these things and pretend to ourselves that we don't have the potential to get to that place. But I've been around this for 38 years now. And there are people who start out really loving Jesus and end up not loving him at all. In fact, they end up being critical about Jesus and his kingdom and his church. Now, why is that important to us? Why am I saying that to you? Because as we read this scripture, I think it's so essential for us to understand that any one of the people in this could be, might even truly be, the kind of person we are when no one's looking. I heard an interview from a Christian or an ex-Christian a couple of weeks ago And that person was at the helm of a leadership in a large church. And because they were hurt, their heart became hard. And while they tried to work and walk with God in the hardness of their heart, they couldn't experience him. And why is that important? Because the best thing for a heart that's becoming hard is the presence of God. In fact, worship is really good. You know what happens in church? People get offended and they leave. I was talking to somebody the other week and they said, I'm just taking a break. Who from? Who are you taking a break from? Yourself? Because I know you live in the same front room as the person you're trying to get away from. You know, if you're hurting, come here. Because in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Let somebody else's song bring you into the presence of God if you can't sing it for yourself. That's why we're family. That's why we're community. Are you hearing me, church? And if your heart is hard, Don't stay away from the presence of God. Keep coming into the presence of God. And the the power of the Spirit, the oil of God's presence, will soften your heart and make you well again. Worship is really good for you. It's really good for you. It connects you to the presence. Jesus said to someone, if you come to worship me and you recognize that your brother has something against you, go first and put that right, and then come back and worship me. Why? Because when I have an offense and my heart has become hard, my experience of God becomes limited. And so it's important that we don't just walk through life hurting and sadly becoming hard of heart. If you've got some problems with people, Go and meet with them and in grace and mercy say, how can I resolve this? I don't want to be fractured from my heavenly family. I value these relationships too much for them to become casual in my sight. Some people have told me that their pain or their hurt or their hardness is the will of God. The amount of people whose the will of God is leaving something because they can't bear to face something. If I had a pound for every time somebody said that. The funny thing is, if you say to them, why don't you restore the relationship? Suddenly God's changed his mind, they're going to stay. Offense is the bait of Satan. And in our world right now, right now in our world, it's everywhere. People are offended by different groups. People are offended by different ideologies. Why? Why? Because God is trying to teach the church that the root of everything for us is love. Love is the root of everything. It's the righteousness of God. The root of everything is love. And so if I am preconditioned to love, you can offend me and I can still love you. If I'm preconditioned in love, my heart won't become hard because I've already allowed the oil of his presence to soften it to such a place that actually I can connect with God. Even if you don't love me, I know he loves me. 
But Judas didn't do any of those things. And his heart got to a point where it was hostile. Shall we read on? Don't be too exciting. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. If there was anything that you need to pay attention to right now in your life concerning the matters of of spirituality, it's that. That particular sentence is so loaded with truth for us. Let me explain why Jesus lived the way he lived and wasn't affected and wasn't bruised and wasn't hurt by what happened around him because he knew who he was. And I'm not talking about some arrogance, you know, patting on my back, a rah, 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 I'm an overcomer. Don't say you're an overcomer if you're not overcoming anything. Jesus knew who he was. He knew also why he was here. Do you know who you are? Now, I know we can quote the scriptures, but do you know that you're a child of the Most High God? Do you know that you're a son and daughter of the King of Kings? Do you know, do you know that you have the Father's favor and love? Do you know today that you couldn't get this wrong even if you tried because God has already provided for all the wrongs you're going to do? And Jesus is God's word to you of forgiveness and restoration and completeness. Did you know today that when you woke up, mercy was at the door to greet you, to meet you? Did you know that God will never leave or forsake you? God is one million percent committed to you. And do you know that the Father rejoices over you with singing? Do you know that you're his favorite child? Come on, you miseries. Do you know that you're his favorite child? We're all his favorite children. Do you know that his eye is upon you? Do you know that he's already engineering things to bless you? Do you know that no weapon fashioned against you could ever prosper? Come on. You see, Jesus knew who he was. And when you know who you are and you know why you're here, and we'll come to that in a minute, you don't get caught up with what people think of you. You're living from a different space and place. And it's solid and it's secure. It's the knowledge of the Father's love. And, we li- and we're meant to live in that and we're meant to live from that. So we got up. Remember, there's an argument here about who's going to be the greatest. I'm not doing ballet. My knee is really sore. But if you want to be entertained by it, just keep looking. He got up. In the midst of a conversation, the elephant in the room is they've all got filthy feet because no one wants to take on the posture of a servant because the backstory is they're all trying to be the greatest in the room. And so the elephant in the room is apparent to Jesus, and this is what he does. He got up from the meal, verse 4. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Please note what's happening here. This isn't Peter trying or even masquerading as virtuous. This is Peter confused by what he's seeing. Peter's confused because this is the Messiah. Jesus, you have told us you are the Son of God. If anyone should be washing anybody's feet, it most definitely should not be you. Now Jesus sees what's happening, and this is what's happening. Peter's taking the paradigms of leadership, authority, position, and power from a worldly context, and in this moment, he's not seeing clearly what Jesus is trying to demonstrate. 
Now remember what I said about Jesus. Because he knew who he was and he knew why he was here, he stooped to his knees. The king of glory stooped to his knees. The one who is perfect bowed down in the presence of all those who are imperfect. The one who was Lord became the servant of all. The one who will rule and reign forever in a moment in time became a servant of the many. So Peter's protests are because his paradigm is not the paradigm of the kingdom of God. And he says, as we would probably say, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him with this. He said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus, ending this discourse with disciples, says some of the most profound things, and they're so pertinent for us today. He says, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Now, pause for a moment. This individual that loved Jesus, whose heart became hard, who now is in a place of being hostile towards Jesus, Jesus bows down and washes Judas' feet. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. And I'm asking this question. This is a question that's sitting in this room this morning. Do you understand, Jesus says, what I have done for you? And the answer is, no, they didn't. And then he goes on, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. In other words, you have seen enough evidence to know that I carry a position and an authority. You've seen that position whenever I've spoken to bodies that need to be healed and they've been healed. You've seen that authority whenever people have criticized me and I haven't sought to retaliate or even complain. Rightly so, that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, we're going to pause here for a minute, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now remember the elephant in the room? What was the elephant in the room? Fighting amongst the disciples as to who was going to be the greatest. Who was going to have the greatest position? Who's going to have the greatest authority? Who's going to have the greatest influence? Look at these words. Very truly I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed. I'm going to pause here for a minute if you believe them. Now, what does it say? See, church, I've got some great news for you today. Following Jesus is about being a servant. If you truly want to follow Jesus, you need to come to terms with the fact that you are his servant. You need to come to the reality that your job, therefore, as a servant, is to wash the feet of those around you. Oh, I know, I know, you've got, you know, a PhD and whatever, and you've got this and you've got that, and, you know, by all worldly accounts, you look very impressive. 
I know you live in a big fancy house and drive a fantastic car and everybody who knows you tips their cap to you because they think you're so really vital and important. And I know that you're a doctor at the hospital and I know that you're a scientist studying all kinds of things. But when it comes to being a disciple and being a follower of Jesus, surely you have recognized that while the world may applaud all those things, God is no respecter of people. And if you want to be great in the eyes of Jesus, you have to be like him. And being like him as a servant is the best possible thing you could do. Look what it says. You'll be blessed if you do them. So the good news is we're not only sons and daughters, but we are servants of the Most High God. And on a side note, if we were to push this a little bit further, the Apostle Paul in his opening Dialogue and discourse to the church in Rome goes further with this thought. He says, I am a bond slave. In other words, I've got all the rights to be free, but I choose to subject myself as a slave to my master who is God. You see, and I know for us that word slavery has all kinds of connotations. But slavery that's not voluntary is evil. But when I choose to be a bond slave unto the Lord, it's the most precious gift I could give him. When we saw great things happening in Glasgow, I'm going to tell you a story that I think, I don't, I don't think I've told you this. I don't share it very, very much. I was reading through the scriptures and I noticed that in the Old Testament, when someone had been a slave in a family for a long time, and, and the came around the year of Jubilee, they had the right to be free. They'd earned their freedom uh, in that way. But some of the slaves would have their ears put on the doorpost, and the master of the house would come with a bradle, a bradle is a little tiny pointy thing, and it would pierce their ear to the doorpost of the house, and the blood would run down the doorpost of the house as a covenant between that slave who could be free and the master who has held them captive but now releases them, and those people would stay in that family because they loved the family. You see, we are bond slaves, all of us to Jesus Christ. It's not our ear that's been put on a doorpost. Jesus has put his blood on the lintels of our lives. And he became a slave for us. He became nothing so that we could become something. And if you truly understand just how significant that is, you won't struggle with being a servant. Matthew 20, verse 25 Jesus highlights to the disciples the way the world sees power. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Look a little bit further down in the passage and read this with me. But whoever will be great amongst you must become the servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. When you know who you are and you know why you're here, which is to serve God, you're not shocked when people treat you like a servant. Now, one of the greatest problems we all have with this subject matter is this. Pastor Simon, if I was truly to become a servant and give up my rights to protest or complain about how people treat me as a servant... Wouldn't people walk over me? And the answer is yes. 
But can I remind you, they walk over you whether you protest or not. Don't they? Have you found that in the world? Whether you protest or not, people still walk over you. But here's the liberating thing. If I've already chosen up front to be a servant, and my heart desires to bless God in that way, if I'm going to become a bond slave in relationship with God, staying in that place of servitude and sacrifice because I love him, then I've already decided, I've already decided how I will respond when people treat me badly. You see, nobody can take from you what you've already promised to give. Think about that. No one can take from you what you've already promised to give. I'm going to close with this because it's hot. When we were in Bristol, we had the great honor in the city of having quite a, a prominent role in, the, in the, the, the ecclesiastical part of the city. And um, we invited some incredible speakers to this particular event. We decided that we would serve our city, and therefore in serving our city, we also wanted to serve the church. And so we asked Pastor Bill Johnson to come. We asked Mark Stibby to come. These were great, renowned speakers. All of the churches loved what was happening with their ministry. And we invited all of the leaders in our city to come, all the Christian spiritual leaders in the city to come to this event. It was a Saturday. We, we cooked the most incredible food for these people. We had fine dining at its greatest. We wanted to honor these men and women who serve we week after week, day after day in their pulpits and with their congregations. We bought every single person who came to that a, a little piece of Bristol glass. I don't know if you know much about Bristol, but there's a blue glass that comes from the clayey landscape of the, of the surrounding areas of Bristol. They weren't cheap, but we prayed over everyone and we gave goodie bags to people with CDs and books and resources because we wanted the pastors and the leaders in our church to come and have a great experience. And of course, to do that well, we wanted to partner with other churches. And there was another church in the city who had quite a name for itself. And on the day that this particular event took place, all of my team, all of our church, who had worked so tirelessly to produce this incredible moment and honor these incredible guests and honor the great speakers that were coming, when we came to sit at the table, which was allocated to us as part of the wider group, there was no room. And I looked at the volunteers and the staff and the pastors that were alongside me, and they were deeply offended that they had given our table, our seats, which were marked for us, to other people who hadn't even booked in to come to the event. And so I remember looking at these young men and women, and I said, could I have a moment with you? What made matters worse, as we were about to leave, because we were serving as well, about to leave, somebody from another church who did nothing, never put a table out, never put a... <laughs> never put a book in a bag, never prayed or paid for anything, got up and said, we're here to host this great event. <laughs> and uh, we just want to thank God for the opportunity to welcome Pastor Bill. And you know, I just smiled. I smiled. And so I remember this young man, Steve, great man of God. He said to me, I'm so angry, Pastor. I'm so angry. Look, you have been here day after day after day making this happening. And I looked at him. I said, sit down for a minute. Sit down, Steve. He said, I need to go and tell them. No, you don't need to tell them anything. You see, when we said we would do this, we promised God we would serve him. We gave our yes up front. Do you think God didn't know that that would happen? There were some stooges in the room eating my food. <laughs> now, you can take my seat, but my food. 
There's a whole other level of spiritual warfare. <laughs> and I looked at this young man and I said, if there's anything we can learn from this, Steve, it's this. We said yes to God and God took us at our word. God took us at our word. Nobody can take from you what you have already decided to give. And so if we want to be like Jesus, and I think that's the game, isn't it? That's why we're here. That's what we're trying to do. Let's not fall into the temptations of entitlement. Somebody might sit in your seat next week. That'll be a test, won't it? We'll see what kind of servant we are if something like that happens. Let's stay away from the worldly demonstrations of what power and authority and significance look like. For he who is the least amongst you, when God's watching everything, your heart, your interactions, the way you respond to mistreatment and judgment and callousness, he who is the least amongst you, the one that nobody moves to let have a seat, the one that is in a room and nobody even notices is there. He who is the least amongst you, the one who gives up their chair for a stranger, hands over their plate of food to somebody who's more hungry and needy than them. He who is the least amongst you, in the eyes of God, is promoted to the greatest. We don't strive for worldly power in this church. Everybody hoovers the floor. We have no pecking order as to who's the most important. Everyone can sit on the front row. I think it's funny in church because people are frightened of the front row. That's exclusively, if you turn the chairs over, it says anointed, 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 anointed. <laughs> and of course, if there is a pecking order and this is the head of it, those of you on the back seat are backslidden. It's the only conclusion we can reach. Wherever you sit in the room, whoever you happen to be, whatever job you do, whatever thing makes you unique as you, whatever aspect of your life where God is opening up the possibility for you to reflect the very nature of Jesus, be aware of this. It probably will be costly. People probably won't treat you very well. Nothing new there. But God sees and God knows. And my dream, my dream is that we would raise up an army of servants, not volunteers, because as a volunteer, I'm deciding who I serve and where I serve. A servant, a son, a co-heir with Christ Jesus, who's not intimidated by worldly pressures of prominence or importance, but looks to find opportunities every day in every way to reflect the true nature of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself even unto death on a cross. And listen to this. And the Father raised him up. If you want to know what that looks like, get down. If you want the Father to raise I tell you what, you've been trying to raise you up for a long time. You know, it's wasted energy. What's better is when the Father raises you up. But the Father can't raise you up until you stoop down.
Shall we go home? Don't forget the winter fair, summer fair. So the, the sermon's been that long, it's October. <laughs> Just the Freudian slip. <laughs> if you're not able to make it across the road, please, please, please invest in our young people's lives. Serve God with your finances. Some of you have the capacity to be really generous this morning. Don't be tight when it comes to raising a generation in the purposes of God. Now let's stand together as we pray. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect example of leadership. We thank you for your powerful demonstration of position. We thank you, God, that we would have nothing here had you not stooped and made yourself a servant of everyone in this room and everyone on this planet. We thank you, Jesus, that your horrific death is an example to us of what it looks like to follow you. And yet everything in us strives for the opposite. I love these words of John the Baptist. He says, you must increase and I must decrease. Lamb of God, you must increase and I must decrease. And Lord, as I'm dying and walking with you as a servant, please keep my mouth shut and stop me from complaining. Because I lose every blessing <laughs> If I fall into the trap of complaining. Lord, I don't want to suffer for you. That's true. I want to serve you. But there will be suffering at points in the service. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege of serving the Most High God. I don't go to work. I don't work for Elim. I don't even work for this church. I wake up every day to serve the purposes of the Most High God. You don't go to the office. No one's employing you. God has sent you as his secret weapon, his servant into those environments. You don't have to lord it over anybody because the power of God inside of you is so incredible that as you stoop to serve your colleagues and your work friends and your neighbors and your family, the kingdom of heaven and more importantly, the king of that kingdom will be very present in those precious moments. Lord, bless your church and help us all to grow in the discipline of servitude, Lord. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>